That's right. Study. Scripture. And the fourth thing we talked about? Prayer. Last week we talked about? Thank you. This section loses points. Go back and watch the worship part uh, from last week so you can get caught up. And then this week we're talking about small groups. Small groups, which we've been talking about in different ways the whole time. These are the things that we can't grow without as disciples. They are essentials and important in our lives, and they sustain us. And so we talked about them, and Kim did a great job of putting them together. I'm just stealing this every week because I like the way it was already done. So here's a way they all kind of flesh themselves out. Davis, hit me the next hit me the next slide after that. Yeah, the other slides. No, okay. All right. So we talked about the fact is is that we're breaking bread together. We talked about the fact is it's fellowship together. We talked about the fact that it's doing study and scripture together, and we talked about the fact that it is prayer together. The key word is always together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Gracious God, may the words that I say be acceptable and pleasing to you. May they continue to speak to us of these essentials. These things that we need to get back to as a community of faith. The bedrock of our belief. And so Lord, just pour into this time together to understand what does it mean to be a small group like Jesus had and like Jesus wanted for us and like the Bible talks about for all of us. Pour into our time this morning with the power of your Holy Spirit. Challenge, convict us, and guide us in your ways. And everybody both here and at home said together, Amen. So as you think about that, you're welcome to follow along with version on your app and uh, be able to do that and see what's going on there as well. And then also those of you who are watching from home, if you're looking for the bulletin, you can see it on the post from this morning to be able to download the bulletin that you might need for service if you like looking at such things during the course of the rest of this service as well. So I was thinking about some things that... So Hannah got a lot of friend stuff for her birthday. I know, I stole your sign. Don't look like that. She was very upset. So she had this. This is one of the things. It's one it's lenticular, so you know it changes when it goes around. So, you know, she thought it was super cool. And uh, But I got to think about the fact is about this, because this is a show from the 1990s about old people like me. Because I'm this exact... This is the age. I am Chandler sitting on a couch somewhere you know, with this group or some combination of Ross as well and doing this. And I wondered to myself, you know, you can go anywhere now and Friends is everywhere, again, everywhere. And even your kids have probably seen it. And then probably inappropriately at the age your kids probably saw it too as opposed to when we were adults. And I was thinking to myself, why is this so popular? Why is this so popular again? And then I really thought about it a lot more and this, and this picture really seemed to do it for me. Because here is, you know, here's everybody together, right? This group of friends who gather together and do life together. 
Why is this so popular? Because it doesn't change. Everybody wants this. Everybody wants a group of friends that they can be able to be together with through thick and thin, just like the opening song says. And it doesn't matter how old you are, that never changes. And so maybe really think about the fact is, is that that's really what biblical small groups are really about. Friends. And I thought about what can the Bible teach us about small groups we haven't already talked about over the last several weeks. And it all boiled down to the small groups book that we started the whole series with, those of us who've taken and done the essential series or begun it. And so this whole sermon is what I learned from those four weeks of that little book. Which even if you don't join a class and if you don't sign up for something, you can get that little book and have the experience of what's written on the page and you'll still get something out of it. I guarantee it. And it might inspire you then to decide, I want to go the next step. But whatever, all you're going to hear today is everything from that book that inspired me and challenged me to think differently even as a pastor about what it means to be the church. So starting in Exodus 18, in the very beginning of the Bible, we, we see a picture, a great picture of Moses who used small groups to care for the people of Israel, for the needs of the nation of Israel. And following the advice of his father-in-law Jethro, Moses organized the people into small groups. And one of the greatest benefits in organizing the people is told to us in the first couple of verses of that little section. You know what it is? They get to know each other better and they decide among themselves the smaller cases that they're in disagreement about and they leave the larger problems to Moses protecting him and not burning him out and sharing the load. The small groups work out their issues with each other. And small groups enabled the needs of the nation of Israel, it tells us, to be better cared for. But then I think it's very interesting that it says, and much happier. That was important enough for the writer to write, much happier. Their homes much happier. In small groups are the place Jesus used for discipleship making. In Mark 3.14, he appointed the twelve to go out and preach. Jesus used the small group as a place to equip the disciples so he could send them out to make more disciples. And in just three years, Jesus trained and equipped his disciples to live like he lived and to lead like he had led. And all of Jesus' disciples were committed to sharing life together, to learning together, to doing ministry together in a small group. And as we have looked at in Acts 2, 42 through 47, we see a picture of small groups as being a place for care and growth in the church in Jerusalem. It says the early church met as a large group in the temple in some form of worship, 
but they met in a small group from where? From house to house. That's where the real work of the church was being done. It was a twofold approach. Long ago, when I served at Brentwood, United Methodist, there were 5,000 people on the rolls. I was the pastor of evangelism and assimilation, which I changed to inviting ministries. I was in charge of every single person who came into the church till they joined and they got active. And when I'd sit down with them in a situation where we would be in worship on Sunday morning with 2,000 people together, I told them again and again, and, and if you're going to be able to make it at Brentwood, if you're going to be able to be a part of this church and to be active, you're going to have to find your small group, your Sunday school class, something smaller than 2,000 of us joined together for awesome worship on Sunday morning. Because if you don't do that, if you don't do that, you'll quit coming. And those who didn't get connected, quit coming by the first six months to a year. Those who found that group would always tell me the same thing. This church is so small. Because for them, it was. You don't go to worship on Sunday morning to, be, to know everybody and to be a part of everything. You go to worship to be in collective like we talked about last week. It's about God and us, not necessarily about God and us. And the interesting thing was is that the reason that I said that was is that it is hard to get lost in a small group. You ever been someplace you know, some really big place where it's a big crowd, which I don't like big crowds in the first place, but I, you know. So let's say you're downtown on July 4th this year, and, you know, it's the largest crowd in the history, and, you know. But you ever been someplace where you've gotten lost in a large crowd? People are just pushing and shoving, and it's hard to stay together, and you're trying to stay together, and, and there's all this going on. <clears throat> it is so easy to get lost in a large crowd. Sometimes you want that. Sometimes you want to get lost in a large crowd. You don't want to. You want to be anonymous. You don't want. You know. But a lot of times, you know, you are trying to get somewhere, and you got your kids in tow, and you're, you know, when Hannah was younger, trying to hold onto her hand while we're trying to get through here to get to this, and everybody's pushing through, and nobody's, you know, really waiting for each other and all that. That experience is not a good one. It's not a positive experience. It can be scary. And so anyone can get lost in a large crowd. But it is impossible to get lost in a small group. Amen? As Shelley has told you before, they will hunt you down. They will find Kim out of town, wherever she is, and say, why did you not tell us that you are gone and you are not going to be here for a small group? But Kim did tell them, but Shelley did not listen. And I definitely believe you, Kim. I, I believe you. I've seen it myself. But in a small group, you can't get lost. So Jethro knew this when he, he was giving these instructions to Moses. Jesus knew this when he was talking to the disciples and called the disciples and he sent them. And there's something else too about a small group. We actually learned better in a small group. You see, we learn better in a small group. 
Jesus could have done all his teaching in large crowds. He could have just gotten big stadiums, could have gone around and said, I'm going to be in the Colosseum. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to give you a teaching and you're going to write it all down and then I'm going to go on to the next place and the next place and the next place. But he trained his disciples in a small group of 12. Why not train 36, 48? Why not multiply it and train large groups wherever he went and then send those large groups out to do everything? Well, the biggest difference in learning between a small group, a large group and a small group is the level of communication. I see this when I teach classes all the time. Only one person speaks in a crowd. Today, for the most part, besides the chatter we usually have, I'm the only person speaking. But in a small group, in a small group discussion, everyone can participate. Everyone can talk to each other. Everyone can have a piece to be able to share and not feel like I've got 50 folks in the room and I'm not going to raise my hand to talk to anybody because I don't want to be called out. In a small group, you don't have that experience. And this will become essential as 3,000 people were added to the church in Acts 2.41. Just imagine, okay? So overnight, I'm at Brantwood, let's say, and i got 3,000 people who joined the church. And what am I going to do with 3,000 people, even though we're a congregation of 5,000? What am I going to do with 3,000 people to get them all connected and active? And that's how we get to our key verse of 242. The church in Jerusalem grew because people were being cared for and they were being connected to a small group that met in someone's home. 3,000 of them spreading out across the city. Imagine what that must have been like. And biblical small groups are groups that know the reason they exist is to drive the mission of the church. Because when small groups lose their focus on the mission of the church, they'll become something they were never designed to be. And the purpose for the group will become more about the group itself than a mission. You ever been part of a group like that? It loses its sight of its focus. It only becomes about why this love gathered these folks. That's great. That's a small part of what it really means to be part of a small group, though. See, Jesus never intended for a small group to be the end itself. Jesus always saw the role of his original small group as existing to accomplish the mission, which is to do what? To make disciples of all the nations. There is no mission other than that for the church. It is clearly the mission of the church from the get-go of exactly to make disciples of all the nations. Say it with me. Make disciples of all the nations. Say it again. Make disciples of all the nations. That is why He called them. To make disciples of all the nations. Not to sit around, hang out, have a good time. That's not the mission. The small group had a bigger purpose And back when we originally focused on creating our small groups wrapped around the ideas of discipleship, remember that? All of this came out of discipleship. That black and white and red book we read as leaders and we talked about and we focused on and 
We've lost traction because of the pandemic, but it's the exact same principles that we're trying to go back to in the same way. And we saw how Jesus looked at sharing his message in the context of a community of 5,000 down to a crowd of hundreds, down to a small group of 12, and down to three or four where he spent over 80% of his time. And he showed us how it worked with his first disciples and how it works today. And he showed us by doing this. First, Jesus began by calling out to those who will later become his disciples to come and see. Say, come and see. Come and see. Just come and see what I'm doing. Come and see. So we as Christians are called to reach out to people who are part of the community that is far away from God. That's our mission field. People who are far away from God, not people who are right there, not people that we know are Christians that are right alongside of, but people who are far away from God. And Jesus called the disciples to be fishers of people. I'm going to teach you how to do something greater than you fish in the sea. I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. And they and we are called to do what in Luke 19.10? What does it say? The human one came to seek and save the what? The lost. Not the found. The lost. Those who are struggling to seek and save the lost. And second, then once they had heard what his vision was, Jesus would invite them to come and follow. Say follow. So they come and see, and then they come and follow. There were more than 12 disciples who followed Jesus, but these would be the first 12. But there would be hundreds of disciples before he left the earth. Go back and read the text. And, and once they would be disciples, they would now be part of what's called the Christ crowd. Right? They, they're starting on this journey in the Christ crowd. And then Jesus was trying to help them become fully connected disciples in a Christ-centered community. They'd come from the community. They were part of the Christ crowd. They'd become part of the Christ community. And third then these disciples in training in the Christ crowd would take another step closer to Christ as fully connected disciples when they started to learn and grow in their faith. Now Jesus says to these twelve and the others, come and remain. Say remain. Come and see. Come and follow. And then come and remain. And some of them, when he told them it, it, what it means to be a disciple after following him as the Christ crowd, after seeing his miracles, they said in John that this teaching is too hard. It's too hard. It's too harsh. Who can hear this message? And so because of that, they turned back. It wasn't just 12 that were following him. There were more than 12. And when he told them all the teaching, the other ones left. 
And he even asked them, he asked them, are you not going to leave too? And Peter says what? Where am I going to go? You're the Messiah. Who am I going to follow? You see, there's one thing about being a Christian is not everyone who's a Christian is going to be a disciple. We want that for everyone. We want everybody to go to that level and go on, but that's not necessarily the case. There's nothing wrong with that either. In the sense that if you make that decision and you find that belief and you believe in Christ, then that's one thing. Salvation is one thing. But discipleship is a daily decision. It is something that you have to commit to every day of your life. It isn't just believing in Jesus, that I love God and I love Jesus and all of that. It's not that. Discipleship is about getting up every day and wanting to become closer to Christ in every way possible. And not everybody's going to do that. And even Jesus. If Jesus can't get everybody to come along, then how do you possibly think that you're going to get everybody to come along? But that's not your job. Your job is to proclaim the message to others and to hope that maybe one out of ten comes along to that next step. And that's okay too. But the twelve remained, and they became the core of his discipleship making. We would see the way that Jesus trained the original twelve to be world changers. These twelve were committed to going that next step to become his disciples. And then the last step is to come and go out. Say, go out. So you come and see, you come and follow, you come and remain, and then you come and you go out. Jesus would send them out. They didn't sit around just talking about, let me tell you all the good stuff, and you'll sit around and learn it, and then you'll be better people, and then because you're a better person, you'll, you know, it'll be a great life. He taught them these things so they could go out. The fully connected disciple is called to make more disciples. The called are leaders who are sent out to do the same thing with them. You see it in Peter in the early church too. They didn't just sit around, establish the church, and then say, you know what, we got 3,000 people, I guess we're done. That's a pretty good-sized church. I think at 3,000 people, you know, Rick, I'd probably call the day and say, you know what, how much bigger am I going to get? <laughs> Why bother? Most of us are probably like going, oh my gosh, I'd love to have 3,000 people. But they realized that the church didn't exist for itself. And it wasn't about them and what they wanted to do because he had told them what they were supposed to do after he was gone. And so they knew they were called to reach out to the community. And they were to connect people in the crowd to Christ and the church. And they were to train people to be part of the committed core and then send out more called leaders out of that core and back into the harvest fields of the community. They knew that was the cycle. They knew they were the arrow to do that and that knowing that one mission of the church helps us to understand the purpose of a biblically focused small group. That is its primary purpose and the hardest one for small groups to do. Send the folks out who are a part of the group with you 
and not just stay together because you love each other and care about each other. Now, there are different kinds of small groups, and this is always kind of, kind of the pieces, and they have different purposes. So we need to be clear what we're talking about here. When we first designed all of these things, we talked about groups that are A's and B's and C's and D's. And the A groups are affinity groups. Affinity groups are groups that gather together for a purpose, such as we like eating barbecue and Bible. You know, we like eating barbecue. We like eating Bible. We like eating barbecue. Or you're all Star Wars fans, so you go to a movie together. That's an affinity group, right? Or you're in a library book club where you love reading books together, right? That's an affinity group. Then the B groups were bands. Wesley, John Wesley had bands. Bands were people of, of the same sex who gathered together, three to four people, and they would go intensive into what it means, how goes it with your soul, and how is your spiritual life. And then C groups we call classes or community groups. So classes are things like Bible study. The Bible study is not a small group, no matter how small it is, if it only focuses on Bible. My Wednesday night group is not a small group. It is a class. It has some elements of the small group, but it is a class. Sunday schools are classes. They are not small groups, no matter how small they might be. Community groups, same kind of way. Then D groups, discipleship groups, are 10 to 12 people of, of both men and women who gather together and do similar things to the three to four bands, but in a different way. And those are the different kinds of groups. And everything kind of fits into one of those groups one way or another based upon what the purpose of that group is. And they all have good purposes. You know, I want to be with Star Wars or Star Trek fans who want to go out and do something together. I want to eat some barbecue. But those are not the, the places for me to be able to be in a group that's somehow going to that next level. What we're talking about the last six weeks are these essential groups just happens to be what those are called. We've had grow groups in the past, same thing. Basically, they're bands. Everyone has talked up here for the most part, you know, except for Davis, has been a woman who's in a group of women. They're not mixed together. And these B small groups understand that they're part of the bigger picture of making disciples. That's where it happens the most. And they're laser-focused on helping people become fully connected disciples and helping folks step out of the crowd and into the core. And they're led and encouraged taking the steps to become a disciple. And those B groups should always be filled with people who are on different stages in the discipleship-making process, which is what Stephanie talked about. I don't want to be with all these old ladies. I want to be people my own age. And yet... If we would take the time, we would find that the affinity groups, which are people your own age, aren't necessarily the place that we learn how to be better disciples. But it would take sometimes for us to be with folks not our own age, to learn from those who may be older and wiser than us, and one or the other. Maybe some people who are younger than us that are also wiser than us. Because the whole point of being together is not somehow to find affinity because we're all going through the same problems. I don't need to know about your same problem because you probably can't solve it any better than I can. I need to learn from someone who can help me to be able to solve the problem in a different way or to learn differently about it. And that's important. And then here is one of the most crucial differences they have and the hardest one the other kinds of groups 
have to deal with. They understand that staying together is not the purpose of their group, but instead their role is creating small groups, and almost every small group fails at this. Because it's hard. You find people you like, what do you want to do? Stay with them forever. Well, I found my group. I love these people. This is awesome. Let's just keep learning and keep learning and keep learning and keep learning and keep being together and keep doing it. It's like, no, that's not the purpose. We're supposed to go out. You can still talk to them. You can still get together and go out to lunch. You can still do things. It's not like, oh my gosh, you're out of the group. Kim, you're out of the group. Go start a new group and never come back. No. The disciples say to each other, I'm never going to see you again. Well, maybe they did because they went a long ways. But you know what? They knew that's what they were supposed to do. They've been together for three years. They had been with Jesus. They had gone through all of this stuff. And when we're bound together by all those experiences and all of a sudden the friends say goodbye to ten years, then you get a reunion for two and a half hours where they come back together for the first time and everybody gets together and they act like nothing's ever changed because they were friends. They were part of an experience that would never be the same. And so the essential groups are trying to do that right now with us. That's why they have donuts and things after the service they had. That's why they're trying to encourage us to to get into a group so they can begin to do that process because without you, they can't do it. They can ask all day long, but if we're not willing to be able to go and say, you know what, I'm willing to go into this biblical-focused small group and do what it is that Jesus called me to do, they can't do it. And it just stops. Which is usually what happens. They're ready to go out and lead new groups into the core. And as the Christ crowd draws more and more people out of the community, these core disciples know that they should be more and more essential groups and other groups to bring more into the core and keep doing this again and again and again. All the time. So then the question becomes, what are the core values of any biblically focused group to help the crowd become the core and fulfill the mission of the church? What does it take? What did the early church do? The first thing they did was they were reaching out together. Mission-driven small groups make teaching people in the community a priority. And I don't mean gathering from here, too. This is the other thing that we do as a church, usually. We gather folks from here to be part of the small group. How many folks are from the outside a part of any of our small groups? from the community who have a chance of actually being impacted at a greater depth. When we did this study, uh, one of us said in our group, said, this is written for people who aren't really Christians. <laughs> yes, it is. It's not written. You should know the things that are in these books. It's not really written for us. And time and time again in the books, it talks about that. If you're making a decision for Christ... And if you're doing this and and that sort of thing, because hopefully you're going to have in these groups somebody who is a committed Christian and is part of the core, at the same time, new folks who are coming from the community who don't have any connection to this church whatsoever. Now is the time. How many times do we reach out beyond our doors to include anybody in these small groups? To grab a friend from down the road, to grab somebody you had coffee with the other day, to, to take a coworker or somebody else and say, hey, be part of this group. 
You don't have to come to church with me. I'm not asking you to come on Sunday morning. I'm asking you to be part of a small group. I'm asking you to be part of a friend. Seven people who get together from totally different walks of life and gather together. What do we find Jesus' disciples doing in Luke 5, 29 through 30? They're having a banquet with Levi's tax collector friends. They didn't gather together 20 other disciples to come over and have a party. They went and got the, regs, the dregs of society, brought them over so much so that the Pharisees later on would say, oh my gosh, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Like that's a bad thing. Because how do you do this? How do you reach out to new people? And why were they doing this in Luke 5, 31 through 32 as it continues on into that? Because the healthy people don't need a what? They don't need a doctor. If you're healthy, how much do you go to the doctor? Be honest. Not much. But if you're not healthy, if you've got a problem, if you fall off a ladder, if you have something happen to you all of a sudden and you're injured, all of a sudden you're like, oh, i got to go, I, I need a doctor. Because healthy folks don't need a doctor. And when we're healthy... We don't do much to make sure we stay healthy. But when we're sick, we want everything done that possibly can be done to make sure that we're okay. And so he says the sick do. I didn't come to call who? Righteous people. You guys have got it already figured out. I don't need to call you. I've come to call who? Sinners. Broken people. Not the good church folk. I've come to call people beyond that. You know, I've often said this is, is these pews don't need saving. People outside these doors do. I'm pretty sure that most of you or all of you have, have gotten that level of being connected in some way with Christ. If you haven't, we need to work on that. But for the most part, you know, we, we sit here and we go in these places and we go, oh, that's really good. That is really, gosh, that was really good. And then we go home and do what with it? Nothing. I've often been told that a good sermon will be a good sermon when it's lived out in our lives. Otherwise, it's worthless. You see, these mission-driven small groups create a space where everyone is a messenger for Christ. They're regularly reaching new people. When's the last time you actually talked to somebody new in your life and engaged in conversation about Christ and the impact that Christ has had in your life? Not each other. Number two, they help people find their place. They see part of their role as helping people connect to Christ in church, just like they did in the early church. These groups, as they reach folks in the community, encourage them to follow Jesus and being baptized and becoming members of the faith community and serving each other and worshiping together. When's the last time we had somebody who was an adult baptized in this church? When's the last time we had somebody come through these doors in that place to be impacted by the people of this church to move into that step? They help people find their place. Third, they grow intentionally together. Take spiritual growth seriously. They're committed to a systematic plan for learning the essentials of making disciples. That's why there's a series of books to build one another called the essentials. 
They're not topical, not life application, not how-tos. They're not even Bible studies or devotionals, really. They're what I call confirmation for adults. They are the basis of the faith that every single person should know. If you don't know what's in these eight books as a Christian, they're the place to start. I'm, I'm still surprised by sometimes when I hear it's like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I'm like, I thought everybody knew that. There's so much about our faith we don't know. So we grow intense, they grow intentionally together. The basis of the faith that most people have never considered in their Christian walk. The believers were devoted to what was listed first in Acts 2.42. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings. The first thing. Before anything else is written. And when you write something first, there's a reason why you write it first. Fourth, motivate members towards serving. They help folks find their place in ministers in the body of Christ. The small group is the ideal place for serving. Helping each other discover, fully realize spiritual gifts, abilities from God. What would happen if everyone in every small group was using their gifts for ministries? Five, they encourage people to honor God with all their resources. They help folks to learn to manage their God-given resources for God's glory. They help them use all their time and all their treasure and all of their talents. Miss Mitzi Baker will be talking about things like that, I think, towards the end of the month. For the glory of God, as we see in Acts 4.32, where it says, With one heart and mind, they held everything in common and shared. And then six, planting new groups for small, more people. They knew it was important to plant and birth new groups so more people can be fully connected to devoted disciples of, this, of Christ. And because the early church was doing all these things we've talked about, and what was the outcome of the church accomplishing this mission? You find it in Acts 2.47 which sums up the whole thing that they were praising God and demonstrating God's goodness to everyone. Because they were living out the mission of of the church. So no matter what a small group is called, there are certainly more kinds of Christ-centered small groups just the essentials. Let's make that clear. You know, this push for the essentials is one avenue to do that. It's the avenue that we've chosen to do. But there are other biblically-focused small groups that are out there. However, there is a central checklist of things that small group needs to have and patterns that Jesus and disciples use to be a biblically-focused small group. And we need to look for these ingredients in our small groups and ask these questions to stay true to what Jesus wants as his disciples. Because maybe our small group doesn't meet that. And we need to make sure we're in a group, perhaps besides that one, in addition, where we're doing that. I'm not going to stop meeting with the Star Wars fans if you be part of a small you know. We don't do that kind of work in the other group. You can have more than one group. So the first question is Is scripture study central to your group experience? The apostles' teaching we find in Acts 2.42 was what? What did they were teaching? Psalms? Leviticus? The gospel. They were teaching Jesus' words. They were going through the gospels all the way through people who were there. That's the apostles' teaching. And when they met in the house to house, house to house, they were hearing the truth of Jesus again and again. You see, God's Word is what sets people free, not our opinions. 
So many times what I hear in groups is about opinions and, and thoughts and about the weather and about political stuff and everything else. That is not a biblically focused small group. Your opinion isn't going to help me to become a better follower of Jesus unless it's related to what the Scripture is saying. But the Scripture of Jesus, if we just focused on that, it would do wonders to be able to help us to be able to figure out how to live our lives differently, you see. Because there's so much there. Jesus tells us in John 8.31 that you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching. Second, are you caring for one another? Caring is vital to the group experience. There are over 51 another's in the Bible. Places like Ephesians 4.32 where we're reminded to be kind, compassionate, forgiving one another as the same God forgives us. What if we've lived into that one for a while? Or in Hebrews 10.24, let's consider meeting together purposes speaking love, spurring each other to good deeds. What if we met together for that, just speaking love and spurring each other on to good deeds? Small groups are the place to care for and encourage each other. This week I met with Roger and Chris Alley, who are the new congregational care chairs, and all the things that they want to do and to help us to be able to care for each other. And they're going to need your help, and we're going to be sending out more information about all the ways you can. But one of those chief ways is taking communion out two by two to folks in our community. Two by two. Go out. Serve someone else. But lots of other ways. Are you praying together for each other and for each other? The small group that prays together stays together. The church that prays together does what? Stays together. The believers were devoted to what? Prayer. They were devoted to prayer. And so the church council has made a video. They want to, and adopted this resolution at their last church council meeting, they want to be able to challenge you as a congregation with as well. Good morning. Robert and Shelley here, your new church council co-chairs. This morning, we'd like to share with you some insight about corporate prayer. Corporate prayer is when we pray together as a congregation, no matter where we are. There are five biblical principles of powerful corporate prayer. The more these elements are present in our prayer times, the more powerful the prayer. A powerful principle about corporate prayer is the one voice principle. We see this played out in the story of Peter's imprisonment. Acts 12.5 tells us, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Everyone, not five people in a little room on a Wednesday night. A powerful dynamic occurred when an entire congregation prays on the same theme. Powerful prayer is focused prayer. Effective corporate prayer is topical. As was mentioned above, the same story of Peter in Acts tells us that the church was earnestly and constantly praying to God. This obviously was a very focused prayer meeting. Invoking the Presence In Second Chronicles 6-7, through at the dedication of Solomon's temple, we see God's glory indwelling his temple so much that everyone fell with their faces to the ground. No one went inside. 
In Solomon's dedication prayer, he invited God to come and dwell. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. When we think of the presence of God, we often just take comfort in the presence spoken of in Matthew 18.20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. But there is another presence of God, what old-time Puritans used to call his manifest presence. That is a presence you can literally sense. It is a transforming presence. That is the presence Solomon invoked to come into the temple. We need to look for ways to encourage that presence of God into our midst as well. He comes by invitation, and he comes through praise. Psalm 22.3 tells us that God inhabits the praises of his people. Desperation. Ezra records a time of corporate prayer surrounding a three-day fast. Ezra 8.23 says, So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. The more desperate we are about something, the more vibrant our prayers. Agreement. The last element of powerful corporate prayer is praying in agreement. Agreement is where everyone knows and agrees with what they are asking God. We, the Church Council of Good Shepherd United Methodist Church, hereby issue the following proclamation. As a congregation, the Church Council is announcing corporate and congregational prayer three times daily. At 9 o'clock a.m., it is requested that each member of our congregation pray for our church leaders. A sample prayer is, Dear God, please be with the leaders of the United Methodist Church globally, within the conference, and here at Good Shepherd. Give them guidance and wisdom as they lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. At 3 p.m., please pray for guidance and wisdom in managing our financial responsibilities. Dear Lord, thank you for all that you have provided to my church. Please give us guidance to eliminate our debt and to use our finances wisely. In Jesus' name, amen. At 9 o'clock p.m., please remember to thank God for all he provides you. If you woke up this morning with only the things that you thanked God for yesterday, what would you have? Dear gracious and loving God, thank you for everything you provide for me and for my family. I have nothing without you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you'll join us in corporate prayer. Let's pray together. So that's the challenge from church council. And one of the questions that I've asked a lot is, you know, all these other things that we're talking about, we do in some ways. We're good at fellowship. We're good at serving. We, we do worship well. Breaking bread. Scripture, teaching. But what do we ever do corporate prayer? I mean, besides the five minutes on a Sunday morning, when is there prayer times available in the chapel like there used to be at one time? 
When is there people who are available to pray? And so one of the encouragements of, of not only praying those three times a day is I really want you to pray about and consider taking one hour of your week to be available so that I can be able to list that during this time, this person will be available in our prayer chapel, which if you don't know where it's at, it's right down the hallway, to be able to pray with people. And nobody shows up, you pray on your own. If somebody shows up, pray for whoever they bring. But I'm encouraging church leaders and beyond because most prayer warriors aren't church leaders in a lot of ways, uh, officially, to be able to say, I'm going to give one hour a week to be able to pray and to do that. And so the two other, the last three things which are quick in wrapping it up are spending time together. Of course, being in a small group, we're spending that hour longer in a meeting, but what I'm talking about is experiencing fellowship outside of the group gathering. Just have fun, share life together. Fellowship has no agenda. The disciples devoted themselves to fellowship. Just having fun. And are you working together, serving together? When your group serves together or does an outreach activity together inside or outside the church, you'll grow together. Jesus did this with his disciples for three years. They traveled together, they served together, they reached out together. And Mark 6.30 says they would return at night and tell each other everything that they had done and taught. And last, are you planning groups together as a way to honor God together? This is where you're going to find fulfillment and purpose. Even Jesus' small group was never meant to stay together forever, even though that's what Peter wanted time and time again. And what happened to Peter every time he said, let's build this tent? He got in trouble. And the early church met from house to house, which means what? There was more than one group meeting in Jerusalem at the same time. They didn't need to be all together to fulfill the mission. At the ascension, Jesus gives them their marching orders to go out to Jerusalem, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, not go back to the upper room and stay huddled together. He told them to go out. And so when we're willing to start new groups and help other groups, God is honored. And that's what I learned from that small book that helps to remind me and challenge me every day as a pastor and as a disciple about what's really important and not to go back to the other stuff, but to stay with the essentials of the things that are being taught by Jesus and by the early disciples as well. Amen. Psalm 103. I want you to do that as the group's coming up so that, that way we can do this together and... We're going, we're going to get out in three minutes. <laughs> Two, one verse and a chorus. <laughs> JR's been timing the whole thing, so I know he's, he's on it. <laughs> Hear these words from Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high? Who stoops down to look on the earth and the heavens? He raises the poor from the dust 
and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. This is the word of God for the people of God. as I keep playing in a minute and that's going to be our benediction go forth to be a part of what Jesus created for all of us a chance for us to be the disciples that he wants us to be Lord we need our Lord and we need him in our lives and more than just corporate worship we need him in our lives with each other in small groups because in that way we continue to grow and reach others to make them disciples Amen